Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Department of Veterans Affairs gave its IT workforce a big raise last summer in the hopes of bringing in more private sector techies. The raise, in fact, did lead to more hires. Well, now VA officials want to repeat that strategy. They recently approved a so-called special salary rate, giving human resources people at Veterans Health Administration a 15 percent raise. For details, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with VHA's chief officer for workforce management and consulting, David Perry. Typically, special salary rates are a tool that we have that historically have always had us required us to coordinate with OPM to establish those. And they're more of a broader perspective when that occurs with OPM to look at the federal government at large. But thanks to the PACT Act, VA was granted that authority to use the same analysis, the same criteria to establish special salary rates, but we could do so for VA. And we have that authority thanks to PACT Act through the end of 2027. So with respect to HR, HR has been a mission critical occupation for the federal government for going on two decades now. And so we've been critically understaffed in this occupation for quite a long time. And uh, outside of having a special salary, we've tried to use all of our other incentives, recruitment, retention. And then, of course, we also had the critical skills incentive that PACT Act gave us, which was our first endeavor to help normalize our losses and our attrition from this workforce. And then also to maintain our competitive, try to remain competitive with private sector. And so We use the CSI, the critical skill incentive first, as we work to develop this more robust and longer term package, which is the SSR for HR. So that's kind of the evolution of how we got this put in place. And I can tell you, as you know, we were able to get that up and running and in place earlier in January. And so big, exciting, uh, I think, moment for us and this occupation to get our workforce more in line with what private sector is able to offer. And so our intentions for SSR, not only as a a recruitment tool, but more importantly, as a, a retention tool as well, so that once we get HR on board, we can keep them into this profession. Point of clarification here. You said that the critical skills incentive was being used and then you guys went with the SSR. Can you give me a little bit more of a an understanding of the difference between the two and, and what VHA can do with one versus the other? Sure, absolutely. So the critical skills incentive is also, uh, it was a unique authority that was given to VA under the PACT Act. It was for closing critical skills gap or mission critical occupations that could go up to a 25% incentive that was an annual incentive. And so very similar to what we would do with a recruitment incentive or a retention incentive that's based on a one-year cycle. And so we did that for HR, but we only did it for six months. We didn't do a full year as we had utilized with some of our other occupations in anticipation that we knew that we were working on the special salary rate. So our timing was that we needed to do something immediate. And so critical skills incentive was that tool that we had at our disposal to kind of put in place to stabilize our our HR workforce as we worked through the analysis and approval process for the SSR. And so there was a little bit of lag in that just because it took us a little bit longer to get the SSR in place. Um, But that was the, that's kind of how it evolved and transitioned. So we started out uh, once we had the authority under PACT Act to use the critical skill incentive, we did so for the HR workforce. And then that, of course, expired. And we did not renew a new round of CSI, knowing that the SSR was in the works and, of course, now is in place. The biggest difference is uh, SSR does not need to be renewed or uh, reapproved on an annual basis. And so 
It's more of a permanent uh, adjustment to salary. And so it's a, it's a much preferred mechanism when we have when we meet the criteria and justification for when we use an SSR. It is absolutely more uh, employee centric for us to use that authority versus a, a critical skills incentive, which is a real finite short duration to fix a, you know short term gaps in, in problems with recruitment or retention. And so the benefit or the thing that's better about the SSR is that there's no need for it to be constantly renewed. Is it a better deal for the recipients who get that SSR versus the CSI? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And so with the special salary rate, it does become part of your salary. And so things like your retirement, any of your TSP or our 401k savings, all of those. Uh, so when an SSR has been in place, all of those things are positively impacted. Whereas when you receive just a, a standalone incentive, such as a CSI or a recruitment or a retention incentive, those don't actually count towards like your salary calculations for things such as retirement and or any 401k contributions. So from an employee perspective, it's a much better outcome when you can actually do a, a, an adjustment to their actual base salary. Yeah. And to your point about retention, those are things that are important if you're looking at a career with VA that, you know, those are salary calculations that go into, you know, a pension down the line if you choose to stay with the government for that long a period of time. Absolutely. Great point. As far as this as a tool in the toolbox here, you know, we've seen not just this SSR for these HR hires, but we have also seen it elsewhere in the VA in their IT department. What are you guys looking at as you look into the future of who else might be able to benefit from this SSR? Yeah, absolutely. So the the IT series, our 2210s, were the first occupation um, that we looked at. And again, uh, that was one of our greatest needs, also a mission critical occupation uh, and highly competitive with private sector for that that skill set. And so it made uh, it was incredible, uh, made an incredible amount of sense to look at them as well. And so that was the first occupation for VA that we were able to leverage um, the SSR for. We had started looking at our IT workforce for the SSRs before we moved into doing the same for HR. And so uh, we're now looking at essentially all of our non-clinical mission critical occupations. So things that are more along the line in our Title V or our administrative occupations to see where we do also have large gaps in our recruitment and retention and also, you know, not meeting the needs of what private sector can offer. And so those for us to remain competitive in. So I think we're looking at those occupations now. We don't have anything that we have officially submitted or requested that for because those are all still in the analysis phases. So happy to, you know, share as we move and progress in those. But we do an annual review of all those mission critical occupations for both the clinical side and the non-clinical and where SSRs are applicable for those non-clinical or those Title V occupations. So we wouldn't go in and do special salaries, for example, for a nurse or a physician because it's not applicable. To check back in on something else that we've spoken about in the past, the HR Mm -hmm. star program, uh, that's been, I think, a way to bring in the volume of people you guys are hoping to. Are you guys still getting the pace of graduates that you were hoping to get from the program? Yes, absolutely. So we just placed cohort five 
Uh, and so we're currently working on cohort six. So we're graduating, you know, anywhere from 83 to 87 trainees that are now, they'll get their trainee title taken off and they'll be an HR specialist, if you will. And so we've just finished our fifth cohort placement of those, those staff into our visits and so into our field offices. So things are moving along quite nicely. And so, of course, we still have ongoing cohorts that will continue to graduate each month. And we're looking at now to make sure that we are focusing on the right functional areas within HR still. So HR Star was set up into three focal areas for us. So staffing, so recruitment and staffing, employee relations, labor relations, and then our technical review course. And so now we're looking to see if we need to expand that into other areas of HR, such as benefits management, classification, and some other areas, just to make sure that we're being responsive to what the needs in the field are. Are, which, you know, I'll just circle back just because we have the SSR in place, it's not a silver bullet. So we still have to focus and really make a, a concerted effort on our recruitment efforts, but also making sure that we're training our staff for that retention aspect as well. So while the SSR has definitely helped us gain some parity with private sector and other federal agencies, we still have a lot to do to make sure that we're still developing and growing and training our workforce as well. David Perry, VHA's Chief Officer for Workplace Management and Consulting, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Work. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. 
Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, 
And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.